Good morning, church. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 5. Luke chapter 5. Back on July the 10th, we were in the fifth chapter of Luke and saw how Jesus called Levi to follow him. Levi that we also know as Matthew, the tax collector, and how Levi left everything behind in his tax collecting business and he followed Jesus. Left it all behind according to what the scripture says. Before that day was over, someone else would have taken over that lucrative business that Matthew Levi had been conducting. But Levi, his life had been changed because he had encountered Jesus. He was now following Jesus. In fact, Luke 5.29 says Levi gave a big reception for Jesus. Right there in his own house, there was a great crowd of tax gatherers and other people there as well as Jesus and his disciples, and they were having one big time. But the Pharisees and the scribes were appalled at that, seeing Jesus and his disciples enjoying themselves and celebrating among such riffraff, such sinful people. These people were the low-life people that no one should even bother with. You, don't, you should never be seen around people like that. And indeed, these people that Levi invited were all sinners. They were like Levi himself, probably some of his former associates and people that had ripped people off just like Levi had in the tax business. And here they are at this big party Levi's giving. They're celebrating, having a great time. And Jesus and his disciples are right there in their midst, celebrating, joyful. And listen, Levi's now following Jesus. That was something to be joyful about, something to rejoice over. And Jesus tried to tell those Pharisees it wasn't the, the healthy that need a doctor. It was the sick. But they didn't care about that answer. That didn't carry any weight with those critics. They, they just could not fathom Jesus and his disciples participating in such a shocking event. They couldn't understand their, their joyous approach to life which seemed to exclude fasting that they always participated in. They, they just couldn't get it. And so at an opportune time, egged on by the Pharisees' evil intentions, some of John the Baptist's disciples even come and approach Jesus. And notice what they say in Luke 5, verse 33. They said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours, eat and drink. We don't get this. Why aren't you fasting? Why aren't you taking your relationship with God more seriously? Where's the solemnity about you, the seriousness? All we see you do is eating and drinking. Now why would John the Baptist's disciples accuse Jesus that way? I mean, Jesus said to John, of those born among women, no one's greater than John. And John said of Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. Why would his disciples come and approach Jesus that way? Well, you need to remember John the Baptist lived a barren lifestyle out in the wilderness. Camels, hair, clothing, and ate locusts and wild honey. His message was one that called for repentance mourning and weeping over your sin. John came as the ultimate and final prophet of the Old Covenant to prepare the way for the New Covenant of the Messiah, of Jesus. 
So John's style was that of an Old Testament prophet, like Elijah, a style that John's followers naturally adopted. You didn't see John whooping it up and having a big time and celebrating in a house full of sinners like this. And so what John's disciples were seeing at Levi's house didn't seem to square with what they had picked up from John. Why weren't Jesus and his disciples fasting? And we need to remember also, fasting is only commanded one time in the Old Testament scriptures. The Jewish people were only commanded by the law to fast on one day, and that was in connection with the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. Now, there were other times when it was appropriate to fast. Esther sent word to Mordecai to have all the Jewish people fast for three days before she went in and approached King Xerxes to plead for the life of the Jews who were going to be annihilated according to Haman's plot and sealed by Xerxes' seal. And they did, but by Jesus' time, the Pharisees had decreed that godly people had to fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. Remember the Pharisee that went to the temple to pray along with the, the, the sinner? And the Pharisee, I thank God I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week, he said, Mondays and Thursdays. For them, fasting meant mourning and crying. Some Pharisees viewed it as a sacrifice, a mournful offering of one's own flesh to God that would gain God's attention and God's approval. And the overall effect of that was to view true religion as solemn, joyless, and gloomy. Boy, don't you want to be a part of that. So when fasting, the Pharisees tried to look as forlorn and joyless as possible. Some would actually whiten their faces so as to look emaciated. They would refuse to wash. They would wear their clothes in disarray. They thought, you can't be spiritual unless you're uncomfortable. Spirituality, they thought, consisted of doing things that you don't want to do and refraining from the things that you do want to do. There are people still like that today that think if you're going to be serious about your faith, you can't be happy. You can't be joyful. You've got to be serious. Can't laugh in church. All right. Irma Bombeck. Those of you in this service probably remember her. She wrote about sitting in church one Sunday when a little child turned around and began to smile at the people behind her. You know what you do when that happens, right? Well, <laughs> when the mother noticed, she told her daughter in a whisper that everybody could hear in the church, stop that grinning, you're in church. Is that the way it should be when we assemble together? No. There should be some joy. There should be some laughter. One of the greatest evangelists that I ever knew was Verniel Guerin. Some of you may remember Verniel. Greatest evangelist, I think, in southern Illinois. And he would almost always begin his messages with something humorous. Just to get people to relax and on the same page with him before he whopped them right between the eyes with the message of God's word. He could have you rolling in the aisle one minute and crying the next minute. 
There was a, a, a preacher at the North American one year who uh, gave an illustration and talked about a group of young, young people once being asked, what's the most amazing event that's ever happened in your church? And they were looking for something that, that would bring out the beauty of the church and, it, and its spiritual relationship with God. But you ought to know to expect something different from children. They spoke about some amazing things, but they concentrated on the bloopers and the foul-ups and that uh, said, made church really good today. Oh, church was really good today. Deacon Duncan, while passing communion to row four, was tripped by little Andrew in row three. You know, little Andrew, the noisy squirt that always sits up there. Deacon Duncan wasn't hurt, but his fall did generate an amazing purple splash that doused the blue-haired lady in row four. Who was that lady anyway? Bet she won't be back. Boy, church was really good today. Oh, church was really good today. During the passing of the offering plate, a single bill was whisked from the top of the plate in the tray there to land smack dab in the center aisle. Hefty but polite Mr. Corbin was the first one to make a move to retrieve it. You remember Mr. Corbin. He's the one with the two tight suits and the ever-lingering diet plans. This particular rescue mission would prove quite a challenge, for as he bent to snare the lost bill, threads and trouser seams announced full surrender, and the noise of a machine gun surge startled the crowd. And there stood Mr. Corbin in the center aisle, pants ripped from stem to stern, with only a single bill to apply for a covering. Boy, church was really good today. Now don't laugh. This is church. Don't grin. You're to be serious and joyless and gloomy. That was the way it was with the Pharisees, folks. And they just didn't get Jesus being there at this party that uh, Levi was throwing. And so Jesus answers his critics with, uh, with a question. Notice verse 34. He's going to give them a dynamic three-part answer. And here's the first part, the question. Jesus said to them, you can't make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them, can you? Now that explanation was divinely bold because Jesus is referring to himself as the bridegroom and packed with meaning for those Jewish listeners. You see, a newly married Jewish couple didn't go on a honeymoon. No, they stayed home for a week-long open house during which there was continual feasting and celebrating. The bride and the groom were treated like king and queen that week, and sometimes they even wore crowns. They were attended by chosen friends known as guests of the bridegroom, and those wedding guests were exempted from all fasting through a rule made by the rabbis that said, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy. So you didn't fast when the bridegroom was present. And Jesus is asserting there that he's the bridegroom. His presence among his disciples, him being the Messiah, the Son of God, justified a feast. It justified a celebration. It justified joy. And his disciples and followers had the joyous privilege of a perpetual wedding party. 
And because of who he was, it was wrong, if not downright impossible, to mourn and fast. Being in the presence of Jesus brought them great joy. He was a joyous person, Jesus was. Hebrews 12, 2 says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And his disciples awoke each day with real hope. They found life to be a continual feast in the presence of Jesus. Now there would come a time, indeed, when the disciples would fast, as Jesus explained in verse 35. The days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. That happened at the cross. But even then, their sorrow gave way to the joy of the resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, put your thinking caps on here for a moment, because I don't want you to miss this. I want you to see a truth about Christ's presence that when you understand it fully, will make your soul sing. The tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament represented the presence of God among His people. God's presence dwelt above the Ark of the Covenant that was there in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. They provided the setting and the means for God to bring people into relationship with Him. But when we read the New Testament, one thing is clear. A new temple has already come into existence. And it's none other than Jesus Christ Himself who was called Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. John describes it like this in John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt, and the Greek word for dwelt is tabernacled, and tabernacled among us. Jesus is like the tabernacle in the wilderness. His life and sacrifice provided the place and the means to bring people into relationship with God. Jesus is the temple, God dwelling with us. Jesus referred to his own body as the temple when he said, I'll destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They thought, how can you do that? It took us 46 years to build this complex. But Jesus was referring to the temple of his body and indeed it was resurrected in three days. Now that is a stupendous claim. Jesus being the temple and being among us and with us. But there's even more because those who are indwelt by Christ become temples also. And that's astounding. The great temple of Israel was superseded by an even greater temple, Christ himself. And by virtue of his dwelling in you and in me, we are temples also. We are in relationship with God. He is present in us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? And in 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul writes that we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the vast temple theology of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. It's no wonder he's called the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Christ is all in all. He is everything. And that's why knowing Jesus is a perpetual celebration, a perpetual feast. 
Why joy is the inescapable emotion of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's why the first Franciscans were reproved for laughing in the church. They couldn't help it because they were so happy. That's why Martin Luther himself said, a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. Oh, folks, the bridegroom is with us. And not only that, the bridegroom is in us. And we're the bride. So life ought to be a celebration of that. But Jesus then proceeded to explain himself by giving two parables. And I'm going to deal with these quickly. The first dealt with garments. He said, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll both tear the new and the piece from the new won't match the old. The Old Testament... The Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, Judaism, the Ten Commandments, as good as all of that was, had become an old, worn-out garment. It couldn't be patched with a few new things from the gospel of Christ. Paul and Barnabas understood that, but many of the Jews didn't. You remember in Acts chapter 15 when some Jews began teaching some that had accepted Christ as Lord that unless they were circumcised according to the law of Moses, they couldn't be saved? Well, yes, they could be saved because a new covenant had come into effect. The old covenant had become obsolete. You see, the gospel of the new covenant is simply too dynamic for the old covenant structure. A covenant of love and grace and mercy could not fit into the structure of law. Jesus sealed that point with another, even more apt illustration. He said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will be spilled out. The skins will be ruined. New wine must be put into fresh wineskins. In ancient cultures, the skins of goats were stripped off as nearly as whole as possible and partly tanned so that they could be filled with new wine. Their natural elasticity and strength would allow that fermenting new wine to expand. But if you put new wine into old wineskins that had already expanded, those old wineskins were brittle and inflexible and the new wine would cause them to burst, and both the wine and the wineskins would be lost. The point is this. The new covenant, represented by the new wine, cannot be restrained or contained by the old, unyielding structure of the old covenant, the law of Moses. The gospel of grace can't fit into the old structure of laws and rules. You see, when Christ fills our lives, the swelling life within expands us beyond our imagining. Our inner life begins to expel those unneeded qualities and fills every aspect of life. Once Christ takes up residence in our lives, every aspect of our being, from our intellect to our emotions to our will, undergoes change and Christ keeps increasing our spiritual capacity so that we'll always be able to hold more of his fullness. The more we receive from him, the more we will be able to receive. So Jesus brings a superior relationship and that he is the temple. 
He is the focus. He is the means for fellowship with God. Everything the tabernacle and the temple did, Jesus did better. And when he indwells us, wonder of wonders, we become temples also, which in turn produces a perpetual joy. We're not only friends of the bridegroom, we are the bride. A new dynamic infuses us. Our spiritual capacity has immense capabilities. We experience a spiritual fullness we could never have imagined. And yet some people, just like Herb mentioned this morning, some people are totally uninterested in any of that. How can that be? Jesus concludes by saying this, No one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says the old is good enough. (laughs) There are many people who haven't tasted the new because they have determined they will never try something new. They imagine what they have is better or is good enough. It It was good enough for mom and dad. It's good enough for me. And they won't even taste the new for sake of comparison. But God, God still gives sinners an incredible offer. The presence of Christ, boundless joy, the fullness of our soul. But it's conditional. The condition, the realization their old life isn't adequate And the acceptance that Christ is everything. That he's the Lamb of God that fulfilled all that the sacrificial system pointed to. He fulfilled it all. He's the temple. He's the presence of God. He's the means of a relationship with God. He's the bridegroom. He is the source of unending joy. And understanding that, resting all of our hopes on him, believing he is God, that he died for us, that he's made us his bride, that he'll be with us forever, that he is our only hope. He is life. And in that life, there is great joy. When you come here, you don't need to be solemn, joyless, and gloomy. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to celebrate. Our singing ought to show that forth because Jesus is our life. The question is, do you have that life? Do you have that life that is found only in Jesus? John's disciples and the Pharisees were out of step with what God was doing. They had no idea that Jesus, that God himself was in their midst. They were going through the motions, jumping through all of their self-imposed religious hoops. And they miss Jesus. I wonder how many people do that today. Jesus was here then. Jesus is here now. And he will always be with us. So it is a time for laughter and joy, not lamentation and sorrow. It's a time for great joy. Why would you let anything keep you from coming to him? If you need Christ today, if you want something new for your life, come to Jesus. Let him save you in ways that you can't even imagine. If you need him today, you meet me down front as we stand and as we sing.